A man huddles within himself, seeking for solace amidst his faith, seeking refuge in a town of abusers and a city of criminals. This man was once a leader, a respectable human being that communities would rally by. But the corruption of alcohol is limitless in this world. Inescapable are its tendrils and vice-like grip on the psyche of Earth's populace. We witness a man become a twisted branch before our very eyes in Father Stoker. A girl born from a family with problems, and the world has changed. It does not leave children in the shade, away from the plight of adults. Oh no. They are seeds that grow in a corrupted landscape, and although children appear to be unaffected, it's the subtlety of the land's effect on the mind of these children that show the depths of its corruption. In Regina Lee Swartz. Two stories, my lovely listeners, straight from Drunk Tank, ready for your ears, written by Empyreal Invective. Warning listeners, this is not for little ears, and even some big ears. Today we cover physical abuse, death, rape, and other terrible themes. Now, before we jump in, I must thank those that helped this podcast grow, and I have a new iTunes review that I'm stoked about, that I'll read at the end of this episode. Firstly, my awesome powerhouse supporters, my Ode Night Tea Titans, Matthew J. Bauer, the Mad Hatting Mixer, and Maya, the Keeper of Valuable Trinkets. Thank you both for being amazing. Your support always has me bouncing off the walls. Matto, today you're the Mad Hatter Mixer, bringing unique concoctions into the hellish landscape, providing solace to those that would otherwise find none. And Maya, today, you're the seeker of valuable items, useful trinkets like keys that unlock grocery stores or finding stashes of useful items where others would overlook. I'm going to be creating many characters where possible for my own Night Tea Titans, and this will be the start of many, many narratives for you lovelies that will change from episode to episode. Let me know what you think, mates. And my two lovelies that are my white tea warlords. I own cows, cow chieftain and wielder of milk carton battle axes, and Lee Bauer, commander of wet brainers without being one himself. Thank you both for your dedication and support to this podcast, mates. And I'm working on some specialized stories just for you. We'll be in touch. And of course, my old grey enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yocone, Robert Fisher, and Tasha Moncrief. Thank you all for being so damn amazing. You have me smiling from ear to ear with every episode. Thanks. Now turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and let's enter a world of madness and chemical corruption. God is cruel, the mantra echoes in my head. It isn't hard to see why this statement holds true. Society has fallen apart, neighbors turning against neighbors, fathers having taken blades to their sons. It is appropriately biblical. The third trumpet is sounded and soon he will return. But the way 
needs to be made clear first. The thought of God's wrath cuts through the drunken haze and allows a memory to resurface. I try to bury it back down into the slurry, but it bubbles up and rises to the surface. I realize the futility, and I embrace the recollection. I remember my flock asking me why I didn't partake in communion whenever I was blessing the Eucharist. I had three answers to the question, depending on my relationship to them. To those in my flock that I didn't know too well, I told them that I don't like the taste of wine. That's a lie. I liked the taste of wine. A lot. To those that I was closer to, I told them that I used to have an issue of controlling myself when alcohol was present. That was a half-truth, half-lie. I wouldn't elaborate further on that for them. I would let them draw their own conclusions. The full truth that I only spoke to God in the quiet of my room was that there was nothing past tense about my alcoholism. I didn't drink the sacrament because I knew that all it took was just the taste of it on my tongue to send me spiraling back down. I know how easy it is to relapse. The past memories are inexorably linked. I cannot remember my fruitless pledge to quit drinking without recalling why I had to make that vow. I only remember bits and pieces of the night before I met him. I had just rolled over and faced the street. I had failed to make it back to my apartment once again. My knuckles stung and had a small crust of blood on them. I remembered splitting open someone's lip at the bar earlier, but who it was or for what reason was still murky. I really didn't need much reason, other than the sensation of laying somewhere low. Waking up in the street really didn't matter much to me. I was used to waking up like this. What I wasn't used to was having company. The man had just knelt down to look me over for injuries. He was likely kneeling in my urine, but he was so focused on me that he didn't notice or didn't care. In one hand, he held a bottle of water. In the other, a Bible. He gave me the former and talked to me for an hour before he gave me the latter. It didn't take much convincing to go with him. I only saw two choices back then. I could either drink myself to death or make something of myself. I thought I could transcend my weakness. I hoped that God would raise me up and give me the strength I needed. The irony of it all has not escaped me. God is not benevolent. God is cruel. We cannot escape what he has planned for us. My path wasn't the priesthood. My chosen path was not to evangelize his word. My duty was to carry out his will in another way. I had 15 years to convince myself of the lie I had been saying every day as a matin and a vesper. At the very end, 
I had told myself so much that I changed that a part of me actually believed it. Fifteen years later, Wormwood would descend and taint everything. I would relapse and revert back to what I always was. My congregation would leave me as soon as they saw what I became. I was my father's son. Angry and belligerent. They found me in a gutter a few days later. My aspirations were born in a gutter, and that was where they died. The memory sinks back into the hazy mire, and I let it go. I don't need to remember. I'm better in my stupor. I haven't moved far since everything began, and that's fine by me. I have everything I need here. The church has an old garden that feeds my habit and keeps me under the Lord's influence. It's large enough to keep me going for a few more months. No one else visits it. The fruits taste bitter. But most gifts from the Lord are. I wash away the taste with communal wine. The Lord provides. All I have to do is wait. I wait in the gutter. It is right next to the main stretch of road. So I typically don't have to wait long during the day for people to pass. I don't move from that spot. To do so would give away intent. Staying slumped over and seemingly in a stupor is the perfect camouflage. They think I'm one of them, and they leave me alone. I guess in a sense it is true. I am one of them. I am what they call a wet brainer. I don't see myself like the other Alkis, though. The others are mindless, sluggish. They react to stimuli like automatons. I am not like them. Then again, they could be saying the same thing about me. I don't know what's going on in their heads, and they have no idea what is going on in mine. I am a wet brainer, but the trick lies in convincing passerbys that I am one of the harmless variety. Out of the corner of my eye, I see them approach. They both look capable enough. One is a man and the other is a woman. The man has a bit of a paunch to him. He likely has a higher tolerance than her, as he is much heavier and has a bit more of a drunken swagger to him. She is by no means emaciated, but she also has seemed to have eaten the wormwood-tainted food much less than he has. She is the first to see me. She almost stumbles to a stop, but manages to catch herself. She tugs on his shirt sleeve and points me out to him. They watch me for a few moments as if trying to decide if I'm a threat to them. The man picks up a rock and tosses it in my general direction. He isn't aiming to hit me, rather, he wants to gauge my reaction. I wait for the rock to hit the ground before I lazily lull my head in the direction of sound, before letting it sag back down. I make no other movement than recognizing that there had been a sudden sound close to me. He mumbles, 
fucking wet head. They decide that I am harmless. There are two types of us. Those who are basically drunken shells who are too sloshed when pursuing their buzz, and others who can get around that are driven by their lack of inhibition and their baser desires. These people actually seek out the inebriating Ambrosia. They assume that I am too drunk to be a threat. They are wrong. I wait a few moments for them to pass before I carefully rise to my feet. I am drunk, but not enough to forego caution. I stalk slowly behind them. I am not wearing shoes, so I make little sound. They are unaware of me. I can hear them talking. The man's voice is a slur, while the woman's is barely above a whisper. She is the smarter of the two, but he is the more intimidating. He will be first. The metal bar makes a wide arc and connects to the side of his head with a heavy sounding thunk. I feel something give way as I follow the swing through. He crumples to the ground like a puppet that has had all of its strings cut. The woman is looking forward for any sign of danger, so she hasn't seen me yet. The sound of the bar hitting flesh makes her turn to the noise. She sees her companion on the ground and connects the pieces. She reaches for something at her side. A weapon, maybe? I lash out and strike her right on the forearm. I hear the bone crack under the force of my attack. She looks at the broken radius for a second, as if trying to process the information. It clicks and she opens her mouth to scream. God is cruel. I swing the bar with all of my strength, and it catches her cheek just as her mouth opens up and the cry tries to loose itself from her lungs. I see a few teeth dislodge and go skipping across the pavement as she falls to the ground. She tries to crawl away with blood drooling out of her mouth. She is stronger than she looks. I can't have other people coming to investigate the sound of her burbling through broken teeth. I can handle a few people but a group would overwhelm me. I catch up to her and raise the instrument of God's wrath high above my head. God is cruel. I bring it down on the back of her skull with all my strength, caving in her cranium. The bar stings my hand, but the communion wine helps dull the pain to a slight throb. She twitches spasmodically on the street. Through the red and white, I catch a tiny glimpse of something pink. She won't be getting up after this. She's gone to the great beyond. I turn around to where the man lies. The attack caught him completely unaware, so he was unable to anticipate the blow. He is unconscious, 
That'll make delivering the Coupe de Gras easier. After I am finished with them, I will look through their belongings to see if they have anything of value. I'm sure I'll find a weapon or two, and maybe some food. Not that it'll be much use to me. In the end, it really doesn't matter if they have any valuables. After rifling through their pockets and packs, I drag their bodies over to a manhole in the street. I pry open the top and am hit by the noxious scent of decay. In the sewer system below rests my other victims. They have yet to be washed away by the waste. I can't leave them out as warnings. If I am to go to God's work, I need not raise any alarms. I need to be seen as a helpless, drunken man. I am doing this because God is cruel, and we are all his begotten children. The world has forgotten the wrath of God. He brought down Wormwood and poisoned the majority of the world. I am only trying to finish the job he started. Tom Waits said it best. Don't, Don't you know, know there ain't, ain't no devil? devil. There's, There's just God when he's drunk. I am the emissary for my God during his bender. These people are mine to do with as I please. I am his intent made flesh. I am his wrath and his rage. I am his cruelty. I am alive. Regina Leah Schwartz I'm trying to be a big girl, but I'm scared. They really don't notice me much now. I know that soon they'll start taking an interest in me and want to do things. I tried to hide this change with baggy clothes, but I can feel him staring sometimes. It isn't like when I was in school and, and I knew a boy liked me. Like, liked, liked me. His eyes don't make me feel warm inside. It makes me feel dirty. I don't want him to look at me like that, which is why I'm writing this. Mummy always said I should talk to someone when I was worried, but there isn't anyone left to talk to. Instead, I'll write in this journal and try to figure out what to do. Everything went bad on my 10th birthday. I don't remember much before then. It all seemed like a haze. I would wake up, go to school, come home, do my homework, usually with mummy's help have dinner, and then go to bed. It was the same day in and day out. The bad thing began during my birthday party. Mummy and Daddy had been arguing lately about what I was eating. I didn't like it when they argued. Daddy went out and got a fruitcake instead of the chocolate cake I wanted. I was upset, but I didn't cause a scene because I didn't want them to fight anymore. I was happy then. All my friends were there and I had a lot of presents to open up. They cut the cake and I got the first piece. It was also the largest piece. The cake didn't look great, but I didn't want them to fight anymore, so I ate it. It tasted like everything tastes now. It made me feel funny. But I kept eating it because I didn't want them to be mad at me. I even had a second piece and told Dad it was delicious, even though it tasted weird. 
Everything got kind of blurry after that. I remember getting sick and going to hospital. Doctor said I was intoxicated and I had to get my stomach pumped. Mom said something about pressing charges against the store. She called them a lot of bad words. I'm not supposed to say. She said that they intentionally spiked the cake to make me feel funny, but they didn't have time to call the police before the other bad things started happening. Suddenly, everyone started getting sick like I did. The hospital was crowded with a lot of kids like me. Soon, there were too many of us and we got sent home. My parents were angry with the hospital, but they were also scared. I told them I felt better even though my stomach still hurt. The first couple of weeks were spent watching the TV. A lot of scientists said that there was a bad bacteria in the soil that they tried to get rid of with another bacteria, but something went wrong and now fruits and vegetables were coming out that made people sick. I told my parents that we should just stop eating vegetables and fruits, and we would be fine. I said that I didn't like vegetables much anyways, but they explained to me that almost everything had a little bit of fruit or vegetables in it. That made me worried. I didn't want to get sick again, and I didn't want them to get sick either. They told me everything was going to be fine. But it wasn't. It only got worse. We ate up all of our good food in a few weeks before we had to eat the bad food. We stopped watching the news after the first riot. A lot of people were dying in the city. Daddy said that it would only scare me. But I was a brave girl. Sometimes late at night, I could hear them whispering to each other. I couldn't hear them, but I did hear mummy crying a few times. I couldn't help it then. I started to cry. I covered my mouth so they wouldn't hear me. I remember the first night we had to eat the bad food. Daddy went out to the supermarket and bought some. Mummy was mad, but he said that it was necessary. She finally tried cooking it. He had a lot of food that required cooking. But we started with apples first. He took a bite of one and cringed. He said that it was bad. Mum tried boiling it. She said that it might remove the bad stuff. The air in the kitchen smelled weird. They boiled it for a couple of minutes before leaving them to cool. He tried it and said that it wasn't as bad as before. We sat down at the dinner table to eat. The food was mushy and tasted bad. It made me feel sick. But we didn't go to the hospital this time. They said that I would have to get used to it. We left our house a few weeks after that. We lost power a few days before. Our neighbors were saying that the rioting was getting closer to us and pretty soon, it would come to our street. Daddy said that we had to leave now, but Mummy wanted to stay. He shook her and said that we had to leave. He told her about what he had seen in the city. A few days before that, I noticed Daddy wasn't feeling good. He stumbled a bit and he spoke funny. I had gone to the restroom one night and found him eating food without cooking it. He told me to keep it a secret for mummy and kissed me on the forehead. His breath smelled bad. I loved him so I didn't tell her, but I think she knew anyway. I remember listening in on them talking the night before we left. They were arguing about me. Dad said it wasn't normal for me to be acting this way. He said I was acting too young for my age. Mom snapped at him asking how I was supposed to be acting in this scenario. He said a big word I didn't and still don't understand. He said that I was in a state of, regression, state of regression and that it wasn't healthy. It's just not right. Mummy said that what I was doing was a blessing. She said that any way I dealt with this was fine, just as long as I didn't have to see what the world is. 
One day I will ask someone smart what that word means. Two years have passed since we left home. We spent a little bit of time in a shelter, but some of the people there were too weird. Mummy said she didn't feel safe there, so we went to another place. She told Daddy that the way some of the guys there looked at her made her uncomfortable. They were fighting more often now. They didn't even try to hide it from me. Sometimes it would start over the weirdest things like food, water, or other people. Daddy was always loud while Mummy said mean, hurtful things. Sometimes I was worried he would hit her or she would slap him. I tried to get them to stop fighting a couple of times, but they always told me that it would be alright. It wouldn't be okay. It only got worse. A few weeks after leaving, my parents started fighting every day. They didn't hug each other or kiss anymore. They were always saying such mean things. Every now and then they would blame it on the food, but it was never really that. They had been arguing ever since I could remember. They just used the bad stuff as an excuse to say what they had always wanted to say. I remember the last fight. Sometimes I wake up at night crying, wishing things could have been different. We were hiding out in a building and they were arguing about what to do next. Mummy thought it would be safer in the capital and Daddy thought that it was too dangerous. He said that it was too far and that there were too many dangerous people out there. He has stumbled across some people earlier who my parents told me had been sleeping, but I knew people just don't fall asleep in the middle of the street. Mummy said that we had no other choice and she grabbed my arm. She said that we were going to do it with or without him. I started to cry as she pulled me towards the entrance. That's when Daddy hit her. Ah! Mummy rubbed at her cheek for a second before dragging me further into the building. She was crying when she told him that he had become just like his father. She told him not to follow us and Daddy sat down in a chair like he was really exhausted. I wanted to ask Mummy what she meant by that, but she kept crying. She told me that it would be much better in the capital and that the government would have an answer for everything by the time we got there. I was hungry, but we didn't have anything to eat. We hadn't had anything to eat in a few days, so we went to bed. I tried to sleep, but I was too worried. I wanted to check in on Daddy, so I waited a few hours until I was sure Mummy was asleep before I snuck out. I wasn't mad at Daddy. I wasn't mad at mummy either. It was all the bad food's fault that this was happening. I tiptoed through the building looking for him. I found him in the kitchen. He was laying face first on the ground. There were a couple of bottles next to him that smelled like the bad food. I tried to wake him up, but he wouldn't get up. I was getting ready to head back when he got sick. The puddle on the ground beneath his face... He started twisting in it and trying to get out, but something was wrong. He didn't seem like he could roll over. He started making sounds like he couldn't breathe, and I got worried. I tried to turn Daddy over, but he was too heavy. I was too weak. I hadn't eaten anything in days, and he was big. I grabbed his shoulders and pulled, but he slid with me and rubbed his face in the sick. He continued making gasping sounds and I got really worried. I ran to mummy and woke her up. I told her what was wrong. But by the time we got there, it was too late. Mummy spent a long time crying. 
I cried too. But I did other things as well. I looked for food and tried to get help. No one would listen to me and most people around me ignored me. I did manage to find a garden a few blocks away. She just spent all day next to him crying, even when he started to smell bad. She didn't eat any food I managed to find. I didn't know how to build a fire to boil the fruit, so I just ate it raw. It tasted really bad, and it made my stomach hurt. But I didn't need to go to the hospital like the first time. I guess that was because I had eaten so much of the bad food that it wasn't as bad for me. We spent a long time in that building before Mummy got better. She still cried, but she tried to do it at night when she thought I was asleep. I didn't let her know I heard her crying. I didn't want her to feel any worse. We didn't bury Daddy. We couldn't find the shovel and we weren't strong enough to dig a hole or carry him, so we left him there. Eventually, she told me that we had spent too much time here and we had to leave. We said our goodbyes and Mummy told me that even though Daddy had issues with the stuff that was in the food even before it happened, he was a good man. I didn't understand what she meant, but she said she would explain it to me when I was more grown up. She told me that it would be much safer if we headed towards the capital and that we would be going there. Both of us said our goodbyes and we left. It took a bit longer without Daddy. We moved mainly at night and we avoided everyone. Mummy said it wasn't safe for us to talk to people anymore. She said that there were bad men on the roads that would hurt us if they caught us, so we had to be quiet. We didn't really talk when we moved around at night. We walked around at night and slept during the day. We would eat food when we got it, but it still made me feel sick. Mummy seemed to enjoy the food much more now. She would eat a lot more than she usually did, and sometimes she would act really silly. I think it made her forget about Daddy. We managed to do this for a few weeks before the bad thing happened. We tried to be as quiet as we could, but eventually someone heard us. We tried to run, but he chased us into a department store. He was a big man, and he didn't have any hair on his head. His belly was round, and it looked like he was pregnant. His face was red and he was panting heavily when he caught me. He pulled me towards him as my mum began to beg and plead. He said that he wasn't interested in me and wanted her. He told her to come to him, and he would let me go. She started to cry and begged him not to hurt me. He pinched my cheek hard and shouted at her. The man smelled like sweat and vomit, and I was very frightened. Mum moved over to him, and he let me go. I ran a few feet away before turning around. I didn't want to leave her alone. I was afraid that he was going to hurt her. I had left Daddy alone and he died. I didn't want her to get hurt too. She was all I had left. She told me to run, but I couldn't. I could only watch as he pulled at her clothes. He tore them and I could see her start to cry. He tried to kiss her, but she turned her face away from him. He slid his hands down her body and into her jeans. She slapped him and told him not to do that in front of me, but he wouldn't stop. He unbuckled his pants and that was when mummy scratched him in the face. He said some really bad words and then started hitting her. He wouldn't stop. I started yelling, but he kept punching her. She started screaming, but he kept going. It wasn't until she started bleeding, stopped shrieking, and he continued hitting her that I realized he wasn't going to stop. I ran away knowing 
that that would be the last time I saw her. <laughs> I wandered around for a while. I did what mummy and daddy taught me. I only travelled at night and I slept during the day. I kept moving in the direction where we were heading in and did my best to avoid everyone. I cried myself to sleep at night wondering if it would be better to die and be with them than to survive and live without them. In the end I kept moving. I knew that they would be mad at me if I just gave up, so I continued going. I managed to live on my own for a few weeks before they caught me. There were too many of them to hide from and they decided to search the place where I was hiding. I tried to hide in a supply closet but they found me. I was going to fight my way out of there until I saw who it was that had discovered me. It was a ten-year-old boy. I could have easily knocked him out of my way, but seeing him made me realize something about the group. If they were traveling with a child, then they couldn't be bad people. Bad people don't care for children. They just hurt people and make them sad. The boy alerted the others and they crowded around me. I was very nervous and my stomach felt upset. There were ten or so people with two children, a boy and a girl. They asked me a bunch of questions that I tried to answer. They asked me where I was from. I told them I was from a suburb. They wanted to know what I was doing. I answered that I was heading for the capital. They asked me where my family was. I told them they were dead. They didn't ask me any more questions after that. They gave me an orange they had taken from a supermarket. It tasted like all the other food. I couldn't even taste what it was like originally. Now I could only taste the stuff that made me sick. An older man watched me eat it. He waited until I was done eating to tell me that Washington was dangerous. He said that they had come from there, and they were looking for somewhere safe. He asked me if I wanted to join them. I agreed to go with them. As we traveled, sometimes I heard them talking about me when they thought I wasn't listening. They said that there was something wrong with me mentally, that I shouldn't be acting this way. I ignored them. Daddy said the same thing and hearing it again made me sad. It reminds me of him. It reminds me of mummy too. Our group was large enough that I actually felt safe walking the streets with them. There were too many of us for the bad men to try and hurt us. I felt safe standing next to the boy and girl, even though I made them uncomfortable. I felt secure until we discovered the commune. The commune looked great at first. It provided for the people in the group, and only asked that we each carried our weight. We would go scavenging for supplies, materials, and medicine, and they would make sure we had a home. We were in an old hotel with a garden on the roof. They put me to picking greens from the garden. It was boring work, but it kept me busy. I typically worked alone while the others went out looking for stuff. One of the people from the commune named Humbert would stop by every now and then to see how I was doing, and to give me a drink or some food. He was nice. I don't like him anymore. A few weeks into our stay at the commune, Humbert said he had something to give me. He took me into a room and said that he thought I looked pretty. I smiled at him, but the way he said it made me uncomfortable. He said other things, but I didn't understand what he meant. When I told him that, he said that he would show me. It wasn't until he pressed himself against me that I realized what he was doing. He wanted to do things that the man did to mummy. I panicked. I shoved him into a table and I ran out of the room. What the fuck? 
Humbert didn't chase after me. At first, I thought I was going to be in trouble for pushing him. But as the days passed, I realized that he hadn't told anyone. I thought that maybe he wasn't interested in me anymore, but I keep catching him looking at me in the dining hall. The way he looks at me makes me feel dirty. I tried to wear baggy clothes to hide what I was growing into, but he keeps looking at me. I know now that he was just waiting for another opportunity to get me alone, and that makes me scared. I have two choices now. I can accept what is coming and let Humbert take me into one of those rooms, or I can run away. I don't want to fight it like Mummy did and end up like her. I'm scared he's going to hurt me like that man hurt Mummy. I'm sure she's with Daddy now. I don't want to die, but I'm afraid to be alone. The other people that I joined with seem happy here. The boy and girl are always running around and playing. Everyone is too happy to leave. I don't know if I can make it out on my own. I can run, but there's a chance I could run into a bad man on the street. I thought that writing in this journal would help me decide what to do, but it hasn't. It's only made me more confused. I don't want to grow up. I don't want men to look at me in this way. Humbert keeps looking at me and I know what he wants to do. I can run away, but I don't know if I can survive out there if mommy and daddy couldn't. I'm scared to stay and I'm scared to leave. I don't know what to do. I wish mommy and daddy weren't dead. I wish I was back in my old house with my old friends. I wish that the bad food didn't get made. I don't want any of this. I'm scared. Yikes, both these stories are slow burners. Father Stoker really had me twisted. It's been a long time since our protagonists were truly mad and corrupted completely. This story shows how the psyche of a person can be warped and nothing is sacred, and how desire to survive can create twisted creatures, shadows of one's own humanity. And Regina's tale, ugh, depressing and sadly realistic, the types of torment that a child and any human would encounter out there, in a world where food as a resource is scarce, and the people who have it, or seek it, are completely insane. And when you think you're safe, think again. And what are your thoughts about Regina's mental state as well? They said that she was regressing. What do you think they mean by that? To me, I felt the alcohol was impeding her cognitive ability, but it was hard to get a feel of how extensive that effect was and when it was noticeable by her parents. Would be great to hear your thoughts on this. Now listeners, you know how I love reading my iTunes reviews out. It's my way of saying thank you to those that say thank you. Seriously, I love it. Let me sink my teeth into the most recent review. JenJen71288 from the US. New favorite podcast. I just wanted to leave a review saying how awesome this show is. I just discovered the show last night and I've been binging on it ever since. Thank you so much for making an amazing show that helps me through my hard time with anxiety, PTSD, depression and chronic pain. You give me a way of escaping from reality and something to look forward to at the end of my day. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much, JenJen71288. I'm glad I found you. 
I am grateful to have your support and that I can entertain and support you in that way. This is why I love hearing from my listeners. Seriously, feedback like this doesn't just draw other listeners in. I mean, it does. But more importantly, I get to know that my listeners are enjoying themselves, and that is fantastic to hear. If you want to leave a review, swing on by my iTunes page, which will be in the episode notes, click on my logo, and you can leave a review that way. And for all my supporters and those that have done so already, you lot are bloody legends. And also, I read every single one that's on there. It's one of my favorite things to do. Next week is going to be chockers, so I can't wait to bring you some creepy tales then. Take it easy, and as always, till next we meet.